Uh-huh. I know what you're thinking. Is this the booth, drafting the circuits, three-way theater or the Kevin Jackson show? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I kinda lost track myself here on Hoobazoo.com. So, do you feel lucky, punk? Oscar Mike Radio. Come in. Come in, Oscar Mike Radio. Sinister One, this is Oscar Mike. I have Ulima Charlie over. Alright folks, today is not March 15th, but that's when the episode drops. This is episode 84, 84 of Oscar Mike Radio, and making her return is Mistress Carrie to give us an update. And so, without all the hullabaloo, I'm just going to say, Mistress, what is your bidding? What's going on? Not much, not much. Uh, A lot of good stuff on my end, Um, you know, talking to all kinds of people about stuff, and you have... Now, I know your call sign is Narco. I think your call <laughs> yeah. sign should be Mako, as in the Mako shark, because I swear you never stop moving at all. I and, try not to. Well, I mean, on that on that note, it just seems like you are here, there, and everywhere, and the last time we left off, you were going to go somewhere, and you had some stuff going on. That's cool. We'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, before we go all on into that, I want to ask... Um, what music is uh, lighting up your playlist right now? There's a lot of good stuff coming out. Um, Godsmack just released a new song. That album comes out the end of next month. Uh, we just got a new Shinedown record. Yes. Uh, we just got new Pearl Jam. Um, I love the new Nathaniel Rateliff record. Really good. Um, there's a lot of really exceptional music, and this year is going to be awesome for tours. Oh, it's crazy. A lot of people that I, I love are coming through here. Hate Breed, all those guys are coming back through town. So it's uh, it's been crazy so far, and we're just into March. Uh, and I'm very excited that Tool is in the studio recording a new album right now. So I don't know when we're going to get it, but I am so excited that this long-awaited project that's been rumored for years and years and years is actually underway right now. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know how they did it, but they uh, got their act together, and they're going to do this. So, yes, uh, that was our band growing up, along with a couple others, and I just can't wait. Can't wait. So, I'm, I'm dying to know. I've got to know, what have you been doing in the military front since the last time we talked? I mean, it seems like it was very, like, top secret. Like, Mistress Carrie is going into the C-13. She's got her shoot on. She's got her jump bag going, her transponder. She's ready to get after it. So, what have you been doing? Well, the last time I talked to you, I was in negotiations um, with a special forces unit. Uh, to get embedded with them, and I can't really say much more than that, but we were definitely in the works. Um, We got it approved, got it approved on my end. Uh, This is how close we got. Um, I was supposed to leave on a Friday. I was going to actually spend Thanksgiving with them. I was getting on a plane without knowing where I was going. I knew where I was flying into, but that's not where I was going to stay. They, they couldn't tell me until I was on the ground and briefed where I was even going. I have some ideas as to where I would have been, um, but they couldn't confirm anything. And I was supposed to leave on a Friday, and it was going to be total top secret. We weren't going to tell the audience or anything until after I was boots on ground and had been briefed and gone through all the public affairs briefings about what I could and couldn't say. And literally, I was at Military Appreciation Night at the Bruins uh, on a Monday night and found out that um, the plug had been pulled. And it was pulled because this kind of mission had never been approved before. 
and nobody has ever been embedded with these guys before. And um, they were really, you know, making some exceptions for me. And at the last minute, um, some people pretty high up decided that they were a little too nervous about it and they pulled the plug. And I was heartbroken because I had worked on it for a couple months and couldn't tell anybody. And very few people here at the radio station knew what was going on. I, I couldn't tell anybody who it was going to be with. And no one knew where I was going to be going, including me. And so it, it was like months of this top secret thing I was working on. And four days before I was supposed to get on the plane, um, the plug got pulled. I was heartbroken. I was so sad. So you, you kind of got an idea of what us military people go through. You get spooled up for a mission. You get your gear packed and sit there and you wait, 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 wait. Yeah, we're not going to do it. Yeah, and it was really heartbreaking because unlike my other trips overseas that, I mean, my trip to Iraq took over a year to plan and get pulled off. Afghanistan was a little bit faster, but it was still about six or eight months. And this was one of those things where these guys called me out of the blue and said, we're over here. A few of the guys in the unit were from Boston. Um, embedded media had come up in some mission briefs. And my name came up in conversation, and when the commander of the unit started doing some research on me, um, they said to the guys that were from Boston in the unit, what, do you think she would come if we invited her? And they were like, hell yeah, she would. And so I got this cold call. So this wasn't something that I... I started. This wasn't something that I approached them and said, do you think we could pull this off? This was them coming to me. And I can tell you that when it got canceled, those guys, because it got canceled with people well above their pay grade. Right, right. And right. those guys were furious. They were heartbroken, but they were furious because they were told they could do it before they asked me. Sure. Thinking – I don't even know if she would come. And, and I had to juggle fireballs on my end because there was so much secrecy with it. I couldn't tell anybody where I was going. Getting something like that paid for and insured on six, seven weeks notice, I mean, that's not easy. No, and no. and we were in the middle of a massive like $6 billion merger with – CBS Radio and Entercom, the company that I worked for, were in the middle of this merger. So we were just trying to get the lawyers in the company to just give us a little bit of time because they were working on this merger and say, listen, we, we really need you to look over all these documents because the military needs this stuff back. And everybody pulled together on my end. We found an insurance company that was willing to insure me no matter where I went without being able to tell them where I was going. And so the unit, they were mad and they were embarrassed and they felt so terrible that they wasted so much of my time. And um, I was just heartbroken because I had gotten to know these guys over this whole process and couldn't wait to get over there. And just to go and back the, a, a little bit uh, from the first episode, you were one of the first news people, first female news people be embedded with a unit in Iraq, right? Yeah, so they they, they said I was the first non-news journalist. Okay, thank you, yeah. Um, that was embedded with U.S. troops overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan because, you know, their embedded media program with the military, there were journalists over there, obviously, that had news credentials and all of that, but for someone from a rock station, especially a woman to get embedded over there, especially with infantry units. Um, that was something that really hadn't been done before. As far as I know, I, I've never heard of anybody else doing it. And for these guys um, and, and their mission to have me with them, I know from them was unprecedented and had never been done before. This unit's never had any established media embedded with them ever. Oh, wow. So that's one of those top secret. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't, I know who they are now. Um, they have come home. I can say that I know they all made it back safe and I am supposed to be meeting some of them in person 
hopefully by spring, uh, some of them are going to come up to Boston for the weekend and I'm going to take them out um, just to finally get to meet them. Um, but it was something that, you know, I, I wasn't trying to make it dramatic and I wasn't trying to make it sound, you know, bigger than it was. But this is all the information that they gave me. They said, you can tell people you're going to be with SF troops, but you can't tell them what branch of the military and you can't tell them the theater and you can't tell them where we're based out of at home. Like you can't say anything and we can't brief you digitally. You have to be briefed in person. So until you're, it's a trust fall, you know, they said, if you're willing to get on a plane and only know what airport you're going to land in commercial airport, I was going to fly civilian commercial out of Boston land and then be taken into their custody and at that point I was supposed to go through two or three days of training and briefing and then brought to their area of operation and and I really knew nothing and so what I did to prepare was I called the only guys that I knew that could help me and so I called the guys that I was overseas with and I explained to them I said guys listen I'm going on another trip and this is all I know and because they had all, you know, some of them still in the military, they were like, okay, this is what you're going to need. And so I had a bunch of guys at my house the weekend before I was supposed to go, and they took my dining room table and laid out all this gear because I was told to pack light and that, you know, it wasn't going to be like the trips that I had taken previously, that I was going to be in a hammock or I was going to be on a cot or in a sleeping bag on the ground, that this was going to be – you know, moving constantly, traveling super light, no nice accommodations that because they don't have women with them, they were going to do their best to accommodate, you know, having a girl around. But the agreement was that I was going to be up for whatever. And I said, yes. And so all of my buddies from Iraq and Afghanistan came over to my house and said, well, this is a really high speed piece of gear you're probably going to need. And you don't want to take this knife. You want to take this knife and you don't want to take that flashlight. You want this one. And so I was ready to go. And it was, you know, heartbreaking that I that I had to cancel it or that it got canceled on me. I was I was really depressed over Thanksgiving. Do you so on the time frame, do you think the. um the special forces having that uh, fouled up mission in Afghanistan, the Osprey crash had anything to do with you not getting to go? We had started this process, I believe before that stuff happened. I'm not quite sure on the timeline, but when um, that stuff started hitting the news, it almost, expedited me getting over there because I think a lot of these units, when those Green Berets were killed and people started saying, well, we didn't even know we had troops there. We didn't even know we had people in that area of the world. And so the people that I was talking to were saying, we know that eventually the media is going to want to come here and they're going to want to be with us. And we don't trust a lot of them. We don't trust really any of them, to be honest. But we trust you because we know that you will come over here without an agenda and that you will just tell it like you see it. And they also trusted that I would follow their instructions, especially when it came to the security of the missions and what I could and couldn't say to keep their identities and their missions safe. Right. And that to me was the most humbling honor that I could ever have in my career because – these guys were in theater. They were doing what they do, and they were saying, we trust you to come here and show you what we're allowed to show you. And and for them to pick me, I, I was so honored that it was it – w- I was in awe of them, and I was so grateful to even be considered – and I was looking so forward, and I, I went into this knowing at any time they could pull the plug. Right. You know, right. it, it wasn't something like my other trips where there were, you know, a lot of big army people behind it. This was operating in a completely whole other level that I had never been exposed to. And so there was always something in the back of my head that said it could get canceled, but I, w- I was really, really hoping it wasn't going to. 
So this wasn't like going down to Fort Benning or Coronado Island and you're going to camp out in the woods or no. you know, this was land at airport, get put on a C-130 and go somewhere else. We're going to brief you. This is a true top secret mission. I wasn't even going on a C-130. I was getting on a commercial aircraft. Okay. And I was going to land in a civilian airport overseas. And I was going to be taken to what I believe was um, a compound within an embassy. And I was supposed to be briefed and trained. And then I was going to be transported to the theater that these guys were operating in. Um, and I wasn't allowed to know anything other than what country and what airport I was buying the commercial tickets for. And that's all I was allowed to know. So that, that, that was a bummer. I mean, that was something that you were looking forward to talking to you last time. And, you know, the trust, the trust thing, I can see why they would trust you. Uh, for me, it, it's just you're authentic. This is who I am. There is no agenda there. You're going to tell it like it is. So when you meet these guys eventually, is there a possibility that they're going to revisit having you come with them? Well, they're just coming up here on vacation because well, they're home. So, you know, I, I've told anybody that's affiliated with any branches of the, of the military that I am up for anything. You make the call, you know, and now that I've made some inroads in this community, are there opportunities in the future? Who knows? A lot of the legwork I had to do in preparation for this trip that didn't end up happening, I at least now know how to coordinate some things that are going to be required by my company. I mean, the insurance, the insurance was something that was really important um, because finding a policy that would underwrite something so vague and so dangerous, I, I was told where I would be going was dangerous. Um, the, it took a lot of legwork to find those kinds of resources, get estimates uh, bring them to my company to see, you know, what my budget would be. In my, my previous trips, I had a lot of time to get advertisers involved. And yeah, I had a lot of gear to buy. And we printed T-shirts. And I was, you know, when I was in Iraq, I met almost 2,000 troops. When I was in Afghanistan, it was just shy of 2,500. So I had to bring boxes and boxes of T-shirts and all of this stuff <laughs> with me. These guys were like... You know, you're, you're not going to need anything like that. And, um, you know, they gave me very vague, you know, they, they didn't want to give me numbers on anything. And I was like, guys, I want to make you T-shirts. Um, you got to tell me how many T-shirts to make. And they so, were like, so, well, you can make this many, but we're not going to tell you how many you're really going to need. So let me, so let me clarify something here just to make sure I understand. Sure. You're, you're not going as your own person. You're going as representative of your your station and your greater company that you work for. Yeah, I was going to go over there and broadcast. I was going over okay, there. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was going over there to work. I was going over to interview them. I was going over to um, observe and and take part in some of their training exercises to really kind of pull a curtain back a little bit on the part of the military that functions under a lot more secrecy, but the part of the military that we're leaning on more and more. You know, these are the guys, their operational tempo is completely different than the rest of the military. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. But there's so much uncertainty and, and so much that's unknown to the greater populace. But when the military budgets come out and you wonder, where, well, where, what is this column? What is this line item? Where, where is all of this stuff going? You know, we're trying to minimize collateral damage. Well, how do you do that? Well, then you go in with smaller, more specialized forces that are going to be, you know, more accurate to, to be able to kind of infiltrate and minimize civilian casualties. And we're leaning on these special forces troops more and more. And also to highlight the, the reintegration into civilian life for these guys that in my opinion, is so much different. You know, if you serve in an infantry unit and you go overseas and you're in Afghanistan or you're in Iraq or, or you go anywhere and you come home and you can tell people what unit I was in and where I was and your service is out there 
And so it's a lot easier to find resources. And if you're having issues, we're asking these guys to take part in extremely dangerous stuff in places they're not allowed to talk about, doing missions they're not allowed to talk about. They come home in complete anonymity. A lot of times they're not even allowed to tell their own family members what they did and where they went. And so then they're expected to somehow go back to being a regular person again at some point, whether they just decide not to reenlist or they decide to officially retire, whatever it is. And these guys aren't allowed to talk about their experiences as openly as a lot of other members of the military. And so their challenges for reintegration are different. And so I wanted to be able to pull the curtain back on that a little bit and be able to say, okay, well, then what can we do as a civilian populace to help with this specific part of the military that are being leaned on and are in combat way more than a lot of the bigger you know, branches of the military and, and units, and I know I'm not using the right terms, but you know what I'm saying. That I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, the, the old methodology of bombing a city into dust is, is no longer acceptable. So these units are used to do exactly what you said, to minimize collateral damage, but to be effective. And, and so the way they operate is different, the way they insert different, the way they extract is different. And yeah, uh, you, you look at somebody like Jocko Willenick and a couple other guys, Dakota Meyer and how, I mean, Dakota was a Marine, but still the kind of stuff that they did, it's not like a light switch is turned off. So I, I see where you're going there. And I really wanted to be able to, you know, not only figure out how we could help them and kind of customize some resources for reintegration that would help them, but also... I really wanted to be able to show as much as I was going to be allowed to show the level of skill and show the level of training. You know, these guys, multilingual, you know, master's degrees, PhDs, the proficiencies at science and engineering and the things that we are asking these guys to be experts in and then go overseas and function like that. You know, some a lot of time with, without a uniform, long hair, beards, like all of that kind of stuff. And then to be able to kind of come home and just go back to life as normal. I, I wanted to be able to show how amazing they are, but then also show that their needs are more specific when they get home and, and try to just go back to normal again. And so it was such a rare opportunity and I was so honored to be even considered and asked and I my hopes were so high and so were theirs I mean I, I had some conference calls um, you know with these guys uh, you know satellite calls and that kind of stuff because when it, at the command level they didn't know who I was they, they're not from New England and they wanted to talk to me personally and, and kind of get a feel for me and what my motives were. They had done all of their research on me, obviously, but they wanted to have a personal connection with me I, to feel me out, I think, and to see Absolutely, how yeah. genuine I was and just to kind of see what my motivation was and what my angle was going to be getting over there. And I was like, you know what? I, I just want to be able to show people whatever you're willing to show me. Because I know from the limited exposure that I've had to these kinds of troops, I, I, I mean, for lack of a better term, but I had a little exposure in my trips overseas before. And I was like, you know what? I, I really want people to understand the caliber of human being. I wanted to be able to talk about how hard it is to, to become one of them and to really be able to kind of show people what amazing things they were doing. And, and it just, it was like building me up to the highest of highs. 
I, I mean, I didn't sleep for weeks getting ready to go on this thing because I was so excited. This was something that had never been done before, and we were going to surprise everybody. And, you know, on their end, they were making accommodations because they wanted to have a Thanksgiving dinner for me. And so they were kind of pulling out all of these favors because they wanted to have, you know, this kind of traditional Thanksgiving with me. And they couldn't believe that I was willing to forego my traditional family Thanksgiving here at home to spend a holiday with them overseas. And I was like, are you kidding? My family will see me next year. Uh, To be over there with you guys, absolutely, I am in. And then to just have it literally deflate in an instant, I – Oh, I'm getting sad just thinking about it. I was so well, bummed out, man. So bummed out. Sure, you're sure. bummed out, but I gotta ask too. What does it say about your employer that they're willing to step up to the plate and and back you like this? Because it's pretty I, amazing. I know. I was gonna say because a lot of them would be like, you know, this is cool, but not cool enough for me to ru- sign my name to this. So, yeah. what is it about your, you know, CBS Radio and WAF that allows you to do this? Well, well. CBS merged with, so my company is Entercom. Okay. We, we, we merged with CBS and it, the whole, the, the company name is Entercom, who's the same company that owned WAF in my previous two trips. And when I got invited to go on this trip, um, the first thing I said to the guys, I wanted to manage their expectations. And I said, guys, you guys need to realize we are in the middle of what I think was a $6 billion merger. And, It's with two publicly traded communications companies. And, you know, we're talking about hundreds of radio stations. Like, I am, I am one person in this massive company. And knowing that I was going to need to have the lawyers involved and there was just so much change going on so quickly. And we didn't know if radio stations were going to get spun off, if WAF was staying with the company or not, like we had no idea. And we were like, well, if we make these decisions in September or October, by the time the trip actually comes to be, the company could be structured completely differently. We could be sold. Like there was so much unknown. So what I said to the guys overseas was, you know what guys, I will, I will do my due diligence. I will go. I will ask. You know I will put on the full court press, but I cannot promise you a positive outcome. And it's not for lack of trying, and it's not for lack of passion. It's just the worst possible timing. And so I did a lot of research. Um, I went to my program director, who I've worked for for years and years, and he greenlit you know, my previous trips. And when we got some of the details ironed out, he was like, listen, I I can't promise you that the company is going to green light this. But what I can promise you is that I'll get you a meeting to pitch it. And you go in there with all your documents and the the unit wrote me letters to show my bosses, kind of promising them in very broad, you know, descriptions of the kinds of things I would be able to do. So that my bosses would have an idea of what they were considering. I mean, you, it's it's hard to go in there and go, I can't tell you anything, but just say yes. Like, it, that doesn't work. No, no. So no. The, the unit was able to give me some very broad specifics, as much of an oxymoron as that is. And they said, you know, you need to figure out the timeline. You need to figure out what you're going to need and, and what we're talking about money-wise. And so what I did was... Um, beg, borrow, and steal as much as I could to keep the expenses as low as I could keep them. And, you know, I started watching flights and I went back and said, this is what it's going to cost. And I think it was something like between $3,500 and $4,000. And that was the airfare, the satellite phone, the insurance policy, um, and a couple other little expenses here and there. And I offered to my company, I said, listen, you know, if we can't somehow pull this off, you let me know how much you can invest in it. Because a lot of the assets for the company, because they're publicly traded companies, they had to freeze expenditures for the merger. So I was like, you guys let me know what's possible and then I will pay the rest out of my pocket because I'm not going to let $1,000 or $2,000 be what keeps me from going. So that's what they make credit cards for as far as I'm concerned. Like, we'll just worry about it later. I just want to be able to go. And the company said, if if you can keep it under, I think it was $4,000, we'll figure it out. 
And I said, okay. And so we, you know, the only thing, we didn't book the flight because we were waiting for a document that needed to come from them overseas signed that would issue me military orders, um, which is what I had done for my previous two trips is that I would travel under a military order. So I would have orders to present at Logan. I would have orders to present when I went through customs where I was going. And those orders would also allow me to travel in whatever military vehicle or aircraft yeah, or whatever pretty, that I needed to go to. It's a pretty big, important thing to have. Yeah, and I needed them, and that was the – we couldn't book the flights until I got that piece of paper, and they were telling us you know, that, that we're sending it to you, we're sending it to you, and then at the very last minute – and I think – I mean we're talking about multiple stars <laughs> that, that had to sign this thing. And a heavyweight. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 and, and somebody at a very, very high level um, could not – put pen to paper on it and that's how the plug got pulled and so you know i got the call while i was at the bruins game that the document wasn't coming and without that document i knew i wasn't going and you know it 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 was just heartbreaking it was heartbreaking well i mean i don't i don't think it's the end of the, the the world of course not but it's certainly after you spun up after you've trained after you've packed after you've planned yeah there is a letdown but you know, as you're, I'm, you're, I'm listening to you talk, one of the things I wanted to kind of bounce off you is uh, a lot of Marines, including myself, are really apprehensive about how uh, women are being integrated into frontline combat units in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was not a grunt, um, but the job I did in the Marine Corps, I might as well have been because we deployed out in the field just like the grunts did all the time. And we did grunt type stuff with our missiles and radars. But there are some guys I know who are serving actively right now and who got out who are like, this is just not a good idea. So I guess what I'm asking is, you know, this special forces team is willing to have you be with them. Are are we, are we, as Marines, should we be, you know, concerned at all? Or is it just really we haven't done this enough with women to know how to deal with it? I think, I think like anything, change is very difficult before it happens. People stress about change. You what if it to death. You look at every option and, you know, and then as human beings, we don't like change, period. We're creatures of habit. And starting the changing process and and having so many unknowns, that is all very difficult. I think once change happens and people realize that it really, like, there's going to be issues no matter what. Okay. Um, But that's the, the same when they... I mean, look at how they integrated the races in the military back in the day. Like, people stressed about that change. And there were people that fought against it. And obviously, looking back, they were absolutely wrong and on the complete wrong side of history. And so I think that, yeah, for people that, you know, were used to the old way of doing things, change sucks. But I also think, and and this is my opinion, coming from a woman that is not medically eligible to have ever served in the military, so I never had that opportunity to have it even as an option. My mentality on this question has always been, as a woman, I think any and all opportunities should be available, but I don't want standards to be changed or lowered my thing is, even if it's one woman in a million, if she can do the job, then she should be able to do that job, period, end of story. Because I don't ever want a woman that achieves something no other woman has ever achieved to have an asterisk next to her name because they lowered the standard for her so that her ranger tab or her whatever doesn't mean the same. I just – we are an all-volunteer military I think that a lot of the 
places that our military is going and a lot of the situations that they're put in, I think there are opportunities for women to be with these units. I've talked to a lot of guys. You go into a village, the women are the ones that know everything, but they're not allowed to talk to them. You know what I'm saying? Like the wives in the village are the ones that know everything, but no one is allowed to talk to them. But if you have a woman with that unit who can go in and and talk. I mean, I never was granted access, but I knew when I was in Afghanistan in 2011 that there were units of of um, American women that were going out and going into these villages to try and get that kind of intel. And it was all very hush-hush, and I was told that they existed and that it was a big secret in the military. And I was like, can I please just talk to one of these women? And they're like, absolutely not. We're not even going to tell you what base they're on. We're not telling you anything. But I did hear stories about how these these women would roll into these villages and that the, the village elders, the men would like get in the road and try to tell these women what to do. And the woman would just like cock the 50 cal and be like, you're going to get the way out of the way because like we're not like the women you're used to pushing around. So I do think that in, in, in this type of environment in the wars that we're fighting and so many of them are attached to radicalized ideology and based on, religious and cultural things that really do silence the women that I, there, I think there are a lot of benefits to having a woman or women around in these units. And I know that there's probably, you know, SF guys listening that are rolling my eyes going, tell this fucking DJ to shut the hell up. She doesn't know what she's talking about, but I don't like the idea of, of living in a country where we like to say that we are the greatest and most powerful country in the world and you've got people that are physically able, uh, mentally capable, trained, and and willing to volunteer to go and do these jobs, and you're telling them that they can't because they're a woman. I just that bothers me. No, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, my position comes from um, you know watching a couple YouTube clips of of males and females. They've had males and females do pugil sticks or combat fighting and. You'd watch, you know, same size, same weight, and she got her clock cleaned. There is an article in the, um, it's an Israeli newspaper where the women were having, like 64% of, of women were falling out due to injuries, and they were begging uh, the higher-ups to change training standards because their bodies could not cope with the loads that, that men could. So I, I, I'm kind of like you, though. I'm like, if you can do the job, and you can pass the standards, which are very high, as you know. Mm-hmm. Well, then I'll, 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 I'm going to give you a shot. But when you start lowering standards and making exceptions, it, it, it's, it's a downhill effect for absolutely the, the people that that passed and the people that are in the in the shit right now that that you know are, are trying to get through day day by day. That being said, you know, in my experience. You know, that 110-pound uh, woman Marine has no problem at 500 yards splitting a soccer ball in two with her M16 or M4 now. So if, um, to me, if she can shoot, well, welcome aboard. But I, I just want it done right, and, and I, I'm just wondering sometimes why that is. But I'm not blind to the fact, like you said, that in, in those kinds of theaters, if you can't talk to women and show that you're open to women, you're not going to get anywhere in those villages. You're just not. Yeah. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but in Israel, you have to serve in the military. It's mandatory. No matter who you are. Right. So what I say to people that are very pensive about having women in these infantry, you know, special forces roles in America – I say this, like in Israel, you have to serve no matter what. So there's a lot of women that don't want to be in the military, that have no interest in being in the military, that have to be in the military. The type of woman that is willing to, A, want to be in the military at all, you filter them out. Then you filter out the women that don't want to go into the branches of service where they're the most common, which I believe highest percentage of women in the military is the Air Force, if I'm not mistaken, then possibly the Navy. Air Force, Navy, yep. Yeah, so then you take the woman that not only wants to be in the military, but say wants to be a Marine. Okay, now you've whittled it down to an even smaller group. Then you take that woman or those women and you put them through the selection process, the training process, and she's got to make it through. So now it's an even smaller percentage of women. 
Then you get that woman that actually makes it, whether she makes it through boot camp or if she makes it through boot camp and then gets selected to do uh, something like go to sniper school or, or something that's just an incredibly taxing thing. That's an even smaller group of women that would even want to do it. If you boil it down, it's literally a one in a million woman that even wants to do it. And if she wants to do it and goes and actually does it, then you damn well better give her that job because she earned it and you better give her the respect that she is due for doing it. Yeah, a lot of us have no problem with that. A lot of us have no problem with, okay, if you if you did the same humps, the same stuff that I did, shot the same rifle, humped the same gear, yep. we'll give you that due. It, it, it's just some some people are like, well, you know, what happens if we don't? So I, I'm just kind of in a wait-and-see mode right now. Yeah, uh, I, I, I serve agree. I served with a lot of uh, female Marines that were, were were awesome. They had no problem like me, you know, using our radars to do what we had to do. So it's not all doom and gloom. And, you know, if you treat them like sisters, which I did, they were great sources of entertainment. Uh, <laughs> we had a lot of fun uh, making their lives interesting out in the desert. So uh, that's a different story for a different time. I'll, I'll tell you that the, that the concern is a two-sided coin. And, and I'll tell you this, that when I sat down to pitch this idea of going overseas with these guys – it was brought up behind closed doors as to whether or not I, as a woman, because I was going to be going alone. I wasn't going to be going with a producer. I wasn't going to be going with a civilian escort of any kind. I was getting on that plane by myself. If I, as a woman, felt comfortable being the only woman in a group of these special forces troops. And so that was a concern on my company's end. And it wasn't... It, it wasn't anything other than we have to ask the question. You know, you're going to be going, you're going to be working, you're a woman, you're, there's so much unknown. You're not going to be in, it's not like you're going to Idaho where we can just get somebody to go and pick you up. So you have to tell us that you are comfortable and you trust these guys enough to go over there and to be alone with all of them. And are you really willing to do that and I said yes and I didn't hesitate about it and they said we don't understand why you don't even have hesitation and I said the level that these guys are functioning at I refuse to believe after all of the flaming hoops we've had to jump through that I would be in any level of danger with them you'd probably be the safest woman on the planet at that point in time well, yeah, but they weren't talking about from outside forces. They were saying when I was left alone with the troops themselves, would I feel comfortable being the only woman around but because you, of everything that's going on? Yeah, but you had experience in Afghanistan, Iraq, hanging around us. You, you know how we smelled, how we talked, how we did all that. I mean, if you weren't ready because of that, you were never going to be ready. So was it? Yeah, and that's what I said to the company. I said, you know, this isn't the first time I'm going to be around, you know, a, a bunch of guys by myself. Um, you know, I, I did some, <laughs> I, I pulled some favors on my own and, and the unit that I was going overseas with got a great chuckle out of this. Cause just imagine the gall of me no. actually, actually <laughs> doing background checks on them <laughs> 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 because I, you know, they could only give me so much information. Right. And so I only had a couple of names and I, and I had some vague ideas. And so through some back channels of my own with people that I know and connections that I've made, I checked up on them. So that I was getting put through this crazy background check, right? Even though I've already gone through two background checks at the Pentagon to be embedded in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were putting me through one that I can only imagine how, how strict it was. And so I, you know, when I got on the phone with them, I said, hey, I just want to let you guys know that I did some checking up on you guys. And they just started laughing. They were like, are you kidding? <laughs> and I was like, put yourself in my shoes. You're asking me, a woman, civilian woman, member of the media, to get on a plane and have no idea where I'm going. I've never met any of you guys. I've only seen a couple of static pictures, you know, that you've sent me. And, and you can't even... Like none of your faces would show up in facial recognition because you get so much facial hair. You know, how 
how am I supposed to know what I'm getting into? And I need to be able to go to my company with 100% certainty and say, yes, I'm totally going to be fine. So I asked some questions to some people that I knew, and the answers always came back was, listen, Carrie, we, you know, we can't tell you much, but we can tell you that these guys are who they say they are. They are where they say or aren't saying where they are, and that they're squared away and legit, and what they tell you is true, and that's all we can tell you. So if you are willing to get on the plane, go ahead and get on the plane. And uh, so I sat down with my bosses and I said, yes, I realize that this seems crazy for a group of civilian executives at a giant communications company that I would want to purposefully get on that plane and go and do this. But they also know me well enough to know that, A, I didn't want to take no for an answer and that, B, I take risks, but I take very calculated risks. You know, I'm a skydiver. I don't just, you know, get out the plane with a bed sheet and, and hope it turns into a parachute on the way down. I, I prepare. And so I feel like I had done all of the preparation and done everything I could to be as ready as I could be, knowing full well when I got over there and really saw what I was going to be doing, I would be completely unprepared. But I did everything I could to be as as ready and prepared and squared away as I could be so that I could, with as much information as I had, say, yes, I'm going to be fine and yes, I want to go. So it speaks volumes on my company and it speaks volumes on, on you know, the guys that, that wanted me to come, you know, that they thought I could handle it. And, and you know, it's just... I feel like it was one of those things like, is this what it feels like to be Tom Brady and lose the Super Bowl? Like, is oh, it that kind of let down? So I, I was, I was <laughs> that was I next. Mean? That was, that, that's next. Yeah. We got to talk, we got to talk sports a little bit, but in a, in a different way first. And then we'll get to, uh, if you ain't, uh, how'd you say that? You hate us because you ain't us. That's how you, that's what you said. Um, look, I got to tell you, um, I have pretty much, uh, Walked away from the NFL. I'm a diehard Saints fan, and after everything that went down this year uh, with with the Saints, um, dissing the Navy veteran who I talked to in my podcast, with the disrespect they showed the police officer that got killed in New Orleans, and then uh, the final nail in the coffin for me was the NFL shenanigans with the AMVETS. On a personal level, I couldn't do it anymore. And a lot I don't of us. Think you're alone. A lot of guys I know were that way. Yeah, so that's, that's, that's what I want to find out. Is you know, are are some of your guys feeling the same way? Some of some of my guys are like, you know, Travis, no big deal. It's just a game. You know, it's it's my way to to, to bond and cope. So I'm going to watch. I'm like, well, that's that's cool, man. That's your thing. But some of us are like, you know, hey, you know, these guys are in a great country that allows them to earn a a ton of money playing this game, and the least they could do what was show some kind of honor and deference to law enforcement and our military. I just couldn't do it anymore. So I, I, I walked away from it. I mean, I, I do not wear my same stuff anymore. I've got my Blackhawks hat on right now. And, um, but I couldn't do it anymore, but I, I just wondered what was your feeling about that? And, and do you know any Patriots players who may understand where we're coming from? Well, I, the Patriots have a, a, a Naval officer on the team. One of the guys is active duty military and had to get, you know, permission from his, he's in the reserves, I believe. He had to get permission to play in the Super Bowl. Right. Because he, I think he was supposed to have drill that weekend or something. Right. There's a um, picture of him uh, standing at the position of attention while his teammates are kneeling. And that was a very yeah. stark one for me, which is one of my buddies is a past fan. And he's a Navy guy. He's like, look, you know, I'm, I'm going to back the team because of that right there. He stood up. So, uh, but still, I just wanted to know what you felt about it. Well, growing up, my grandfather, who really inspired a lot of the work that I do now, he was a World War II and Korean War veteran, um, Navy. He was a radio operator. And he was really the patriarch of the family. And my grandfather, my grandfather was very progressive, I think, for his time. Um, and I remember very distinctly as a child having kind of philosophical conversations about my grandfather and he was very uh, upset about 
you know, the way that, say, the Navy integrated during World War II, um, you know, with racial integration and that kind of stuff. And he, you know, basically said, you know, this is – you're going to wear a uniform for this country. We're all Americans. We're all equal. And it was my grandfather that taught me that you have the right to burn a flag. That's your right. I'm not going to agree with it. I think it's wrong. But it would be wrong to tell you that you can't do it. Your freedom to do that action is why I put the uniform on. But I staunchly oppose what you do if you do that. And so I think my grandfather would have looked at these protests and said, the fact that they have the right to protest like that proves we're the greatest country on the planet. In other countries, you would get shot for disrespecting your country, your king, your God. And that's no, as a I've man, got, never mind what they would do to you as a woman. I've got, and I've so got, personally, got. you know, I, I was raised with that mentality of, you know, I would never kneel during the national anthem. But I have to say that if you are going to respect the freedom in this country, freedom of speech, freedom of speech isn't the freedom to agree with somebody that says exactly what you want to hear. The beauty of freedom of speech is having to listen to someone that you do not agree with one iota so, and that they have the right to say that in this country. My view was you're absolutely, your granddad and you're absolutely right. Uh, I put on a uniform to defend your um, ability to protest. I've got no problem with what they did. I have no problem with someone burned the flag. I don't like it. I don't respect it, but I'm not going to sit there and say that you can't do it. I'm not going to sit there and say you can't kneel, but the problem I had was because I didn't just automatically agree with what was being done, I was a bad guy. I'm like, no, I'm not a bad guy. I don't like what you're doing. And it, I kept being told that I'm the a-hole, I'm the jerk, I don't understand. I'm like, well, you enjoy a level of freedom and, and a quality of life in this country that you won't get anywhere else for playing a game. I'm sorry. So I, and I, I would agree with your grandfather if he was sitting with us right now. And, and I agree with you, by the way. But um, for a lot of us, it was a very... Um, hard thing because we were almost forced to pick sides and then a couple things happened with my team i'm like you know this is not the saints i grew up with i would never imagine them you know uh disrespecting a uh a black police officer that was shot and killed new orleans i I just it just was unbelievable and then uh john wells is a navy veteran and and was going to get honored and he for the same reason couldn't accept their award and they called him out in the newspaper i'm like "What, what is this Meanwhile, we're told these other guys are heroes. And so it, it was hard. And then you, you see the guys like the, the, the guy in the Patriots who's a naval officer. James Harrison came out very hard for you for uh, you know supporting uh, the military. It was just a, a, a different kind of time in this country and, and for the NFL. And it uh, is something that's been um, on my mind. It's, it's unfortunate that the political climate right now is either us or them. You're with us or you're against us, that the tribal mentality has gotten that you can't even say, well, I don't agree with it, but I support it. And when it comes to the root of the protest themselves, when it comes to, you know, protesting, um, you know, police violence with African-Americans, this is what I say. I have absolutely no idea what it is like to be an African-American in the United States of America. I cannot imagine what that is like. I did not grow up as an African-American in this country. So it is very difficult for me to even have an opinion because I just don't understand. That being said, with everything that's happening right now with the Me Too movement and all of that, there are a lot of men that have opinions. And to those men, I say, you have no idea what it is like to grow up a woman in this country, no matter what your race is. You know, you you don't know what it's like to know that you need to walk two blocks to the parking garage to get your car and be inherently afraid. 
And no, because society has told you that if something happens to you, it's because you chose to walk by yourself or it's because you chose to wear what you wore because you should have known better that somehow it's now your fault that something happened to you because you walked two blocks to go to the parking garage when you said goodbye to your friends. And you don't know what it's like to go and sit in a room and negotiate for a pay raise or a contract extension when the six people sitting across the table from you are all men. And so is 90% of the other people that you work with. So when I looked at what was going on with these protests in the NFL specifically, I don't know what it's like to see blue lights behind me and be afraid to pull over and afraid of what would happen with the police. I grew up with an uncle that was a cop. I trust the police implicitly. I am an extremely vocal advocate of our law enforcement. And I can't imagine what it would be like to be afraid of them because as a woman, I, I've had to call them, especially here at WAF. I've had some issues over the years where those guys have been my knights in shining armor. And I've never hesitated at thinking that I could trust you know, someone in uniform. So... I can't put myself in that position. I didn't grow up in an inner city. I didn't grow up a minority. I don't understand. I have great empathy, but I don't understand. And I would just hope that that same empathy, regardless of race or creed or anything, would be shown to women. Because if you are a man in this country, especially if you are a physically superior man, meaning you are very tall in stature or you're very muscular, it is impossible for you to understand what it feels like to be physically inferior everywhere you go all the time. And to be treated as a second-class citizen or, you know, I mean, just for myself – you know, if you don't have kids, which I don't, society has an opinion on that. But if you have kids, society has an opinion on how many you have. And society has an opinion on if you stay home as a housewife and a stay-at-home mom. And they have an opinion if you go back to work too quickly. Because then you're a bad mother because you're not at home with your kids. I just feel like there's so much judgment. And... You know, working, I'm going to celebrate my 20th anniversary on the air at WAF next month. Working Ooh. in rock, I know, it's crazy, wow. right? So working in rock radio, which is completely male-dominated, and just working in communications in general for the last 20 years full-time, I'm allowed to have an opinion about it because I've been surrounded by guys pretty much all the time, you know? I was the only woman on the air at WAF for a long time. Well, it, it, and, hasn't, it hasn't escaped me, uh, Mistress, that you you host the ten to the three time frame in Boston in a pretty significant radio station, right? And, and I'm like, that didn't happen by accident. So you had to be pretty good at what you did. But I can certainly understand um, because I've been in some situations where. On the flip side, I've gone into the, the female-dominated fields to try to make inroads, and I get a little taste of it. And it's not very fun. It's not very fun at all. And, and so, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a woman. I don't know what it's like to be a, a, a African-American in those situations, which is why, again, I have no problem with you protesting. And I, I won't like it, and I won't stop you from doing it, but I just don't want to sit there and say, okay, I don't I don't agree with it. Well, he's a racist. No, I'm not a racist, man. I just don't agree with what you're doing. Right. That, that, that That's where I think, and I think you hit it right, is there's us versus them. Yeah, and that's not it. We all need to realize we're all Americans, so we're all on the same team. But we also need to accept and acknowledge our differences. It is absolutely impossible for me as a white woman in New England to understand what it is like to be an African-American man in Mississippi and vice versa. Right. It, but at least have the common respect of saying, but we're American and above that, human. And so, you know, your story isn't the same as mine. I at least acknowledge our differences but i would like to find where we're similar as opposed to point out where we're different i remember flying um flying to iraq or home from iraq 
and being on the commercial flight. And I think it was the flight maybe to Kuwait. Oh no, I think it was from Bahrain to Kabul when I went to, when I went to Afghanistan. And my producer and I were the only Caucasian people on the plane. Definitely that, you know, like I'm sitting on the plane with purple hair because I, I didn't put the hijab on until we got into Afghani airspace and I covered my hair so that I could get off the plane and go through customs and immigration and security. But I remember that feeling of, of being the only one of, of being the minority. And, and most of the people on the plane were men. And I, I remember that feeling of isolation and uncertainty. And there was a little bit of fear because I didn't really know what the people around me were thinking. And, and as a Caucasian American in New England, I had never really experienced that before. And it was very eye opening for me just to have an idea of what it felt like to be such a minority, such a, to be the only one. And that was all, it's not like anybody said anything to me to make me uncomfortable. It's not like anybody did anything to me to make me, un, you know, uncomfortable. It was just the awareness that I was different. And that gives me great empathy for someone, you know, that does walk into a room where everybody is white or where everyone is male or like what you were saying, you walk into a room full of women. There are, you know, um, there are jobs where you do – if you're a nurse, if you're a teacher, there are female-dominated fields. And as a man, you walk in there and go, whoa, okay. And, you know, think about it. If you're a guy and you tell people you're a nurse, people know, have an opinion about that. Yeah, they do. I, I, I got a couple guys I know who are nurses. One's in the Army, actually, and uh, it, it, he gets a different kind of glance than I do. Yeah, and it's and that's wrong. And going back to the questions that my bosses asked me, you know, are you going to be comfortable as the only woman, as the civilian, being around this group of type A macho strangers? Are you okay with that? And that question had to be asked because I was going to be defenseless. Not even against the enemy <laughs> that was out there, whoever that enemy was in whatever country I was going to be in. But I was going to be outnumbered and alone with the people that I was the closest to. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you, you've been in radio for 20 years. Let's just call it 20 years. And you worked with guys you know, like us. You dealt with us. You have to have some kind of idea about how we work and how we operate and do you feel that that made it easier to relate to uh, the military guys you were embedded with in Iraq and Afghanistan? Do you understand how to how we tick more than say a teacher or an administrative assistant or even a, 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 a bunch of nurses who work with females all the time? Does that help you at all? Well, I think it goes back to how you were raised. My dad was a career firefighter. So I was the little girl that, you know, grew up at the firehouse. So I was surrounded by first responders my whole life. Okay. Um, cops, firefighters. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a military family. Um, my dad's best friend, my uncle Froggy was a paratrooper in Vietnam who, um, is definitely uh, another person that, inspired me to do the work that I do with post-traumatic stress and those kind of things because of growing up and seeing how his service affected him. So I was, I was around that a lot. You know, I, I, I got very used to the, you know, the firehouse banter and I've never really been the girliest of girls. Shockingly enough. I know how that is for you to I'm just imagine all the time. I just can't I'm <laughs> waiting for it to come out, but I just don't see it. I was one of the only girls in the neighborhood, so growing up, you know, when we were in the neighborhood playing Star Wars, I got to be Princess Leia because I was the only one. <laughs> and I just always kind of gravitated towards hanging around with the guys. I've always been that girl. And so once I started to befriend people in the military and get to know people, and as my social circle grew, you know, I always had girlfriends, but I always had more in common with the guys. And so the... The, the rough around the edges, the jokes, the, you know, the crassness a little bit, you know, I, I like that. 
I, I like that someone's willing to look you in the face and bust your balls and because I'd rather have them do it to my face than do it behind my back. You know, I, I love the transparent, like, this is me, this is what you get, this is what I think, this is how I feel. And I, I love that. And then once I started surrounding myself with these guys, and especially going overseas, and seeing how they work and how, okay, now it's time to joke around and now it's time to be serious. And I've never felt uncomfortable. Never. Not, not one second of any of the time I've spent with any of the military unit. I, it just never, I've never been disrespected. I have never been um, made to feel uncomfortable. I, I, I've never felt threatened. I, I never, none of that. And so, you know, when, when the Me Too movement really started, a lot of people started asking me because I have worked in a male-dominated field for so long. And they're like, oh, you must have stories. And they're, they're one or two, and they're never from anyone that I worked with. They were always coming from, like, a competing radio station who had something, you know, disgusting to say. But I never – it's almost like I feel guilty. Like, I'm not in the club because I never had that problem, and I can't imagine the women – and, and what they've gone through, the, the horrific stories that have come out about these women who, you know, were threatened and harassed and controlled and, and forced to, to endure this harassment and, and assault. And I, I can't even fathom it because I guess I've just always been fortunate to be surrounded by high caliber people. That's the end of part one. Check OscarMikeRadio.com for part two. Thanks, Omar out.